join Derek and Yvonne Mulligan, your enthusiastic hosts on The Hipstorians, as we whiz back and forth through time and covering the stories that have shaped our world. With listeners spanning across 39 countries, this compelling podcast will bridge the past and the present in an entertaining, accessible and lively way. Tomorrow may be a mystery, but on The Hipstorians, everything else is history. We explore historical events through interviews with world-renowned authors and historians, deep diving into different eras and uncovering hidden gems. Whether you're a history aficionado or a curious newcomer, we offer something for everyone. So subscribe today to embark on your time-traveling adventure with us, the Hipstorians. Connect with a community that shares your passion for the past and stay tuned for engaging interviews, enlightening discussions and a fresh take on history. So grab that cuppa, get comfortable. Here we go. Welcome, Hipstorians. We're back again, another episode. Um, this week, we shall be speaking with Anne Cadwallader, who has expansive career in journalism that spanned three decades, working on both sides of the Irish border, originally from London and relocated uh, to Northern Ireland and Belfast and spent the last 14 years working with the Pat Finucan Centre. We're going to be touching on subjects like collusion with the, the British state, which is the predominantly the type of work that Anne um, has been involved in. And I think we're coming up to the 10th anniversary of the release of Anne's book on collusion, Lethal Allies, which dealt with 120 case studies, essentially, of possible murder and collusion with the British state. So our weekly weather update here, I'm actually in Dublin today. It has been dull and overcast. It has been lashing rain since before we went on holidays. Doesn't look like it might stop soon, but there you go. I hope it's sunnier wherever you are. My fellow historian Yvonne is in lovely Leitrim. And uh, with that, we shall begin and welcome Anne. Thank you very much you. for coming on the show. How are you today? Grand, grand. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, haven't, I haven't dissolved in all the rain yet. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So, I mean, it's interesting. We were just, I have to, I have to say this. We were just chatting before we went live there. Yvonne was asking about your surname. So explain to our listeners the root of the name Cadwallader. Well, it's a Welsh name. Um, There should be a joke in there somewhere, an English woman with a Welsh name living in Ireland. (laughs) Uh, But it's a Welsh name and it literally translates um, from the Welsh for a hero on the field of battle or, or, or a, you know, a good fight, a good fighter. And I've, I seem to have spent most of my years in Ireland fighting one way or another, not literally, but figuratively, all right. I think it's well suited to you. You know, you worked with um, The Guardian, The, the Times, um, The Irish Times, RT. Reuters, um, for many years, and, and were, was a Northern Ireland correspondent as well, working in the trouble. So you saw the violence up, up close and personal, correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, when I arrived in Ireland to work for the BBC in 1981, after the after sort of six months and until once they knew that I wasn't going to make an idiot of myself, I was what they call the the the, um, the radio Ulster's fireman. And by that I mean that if there was a bombing or a shooting in the middle of the night, uh, the person who got the call to go and see what was happening was me. So I was very frequently woken up at two, three o'clock in the morning. I had to get into my car and drive to wherever there'd been an incident. 
and report on it for the next morning's Good Morning Ulster and for BBC Radio 4 and, and the network generally. And I did that for years. And I covered the Mays prison breakout, for example, when 37 prisoners escaped from the Mays jail, supposedly the most secure jail in Europe, and uh, covered a lot of very, very tragic and, and violent incidents. And then I quit and went down south, worked for the Irish press, worked for RTE, uh, went back to work for the BBC again when the Irish press went bust. And then I spent 12 years working for Independent Network News before I quit there and joined the Pat Finucane Centre. Now, if people don't know, and there's no reason why they should, the Pat Finucane Centre acts as, an, as advocates on behalf of families who approach us and ask us for help to find out what happened to their loved ones. Many, many hundreds, if not thousands of people in the North still haven't got the full truth of what happened to their relatives, how they were killed, why they were killed, who was behind it. And we do our best to investigate. So while I was a journalist, I was investigating. And then when I worked for the Pat Finucane Centre, I was also investigating. And as you rightly say, I wrote the book Lethal Allies, which was um, published in October 2013. So nearly 10 years ago. And it sold over 20,000 copies and was wow. made into a film, a documentary film called Unquiet Graves, if anybody wants to look that up, which is a kind of, if you like, it would be an introduction to the book because the book is quite dense and quite hard to read, not only because it uh, concerns so many terrible, unpleasant murders, but because in order for it to be useful, it had to be cross-referenced and very heavily sourced. So although it was intended for the general reader, um, it's not, well, shall we say, don't take it to the beach if you're going on holiday. Fair enough. Um, it's a complex thing, Northern Ireland, you know, and the, I know you refer to it as a conflict. Now, as a personal point of view myself, I refer to it as a conflict as well. The Troubles is, I think, a horribly disrespectful euphemism to all those who have suffered and, and died during that 30-year period. But it was very, very much a conflict. But it's a, it's a difficult one for outsiders and, and possibly insiders to get a handle on. Yeah. And I find that so difficult to understand myself because I came to Northern Ireland in uh, 1981, as I said, intending to say six months. But, you know, and here I am 30 plus years later, I'm still here. That's because I found it absolutely fascinating. I got I got sucked into it. I, I couldn't and I still feel a very upset, I suppose is the wrong word, but I still feel puzzled as to why other people don't find it as interesting as I do, did and do. For, for me, coming from England with no knowledge at all of any, any Irish history at all when I came, came over first. I just couldn't believe what I saw when I came here. And I immediately made up my mind to give up my job in England. And I was working at the time in Yorkshire for the Bradford Telegraph and Argus. So I decided to quit there and apply. I applied for every job and every news outlet in, North, in Ireland that I could, because I immediately realized that the conflict here was nothing like what I'd expected it to be. And the more I found out, the more interested I became. And I'm still as interested now as I was when I first came over as a young thing in 1981. And yet the rest of the world seems to find it. I think I don't know. Um, maybe as journalists, we just haven't done the job right. Because I believe it is really interesting. I mean, what is not interesting about a conflict between two groups of people 
who are so close together, uh, well, not two groups of people, I should say three, because the British government is also a participant in the conflict. What could be more interesting than a debate over nationality, over allegiance, over colonialism, over community relations, over when is violence justified and when is it not justified? I mean, what is not interesting about all that? And that is at the heart of the Northern Ireland conflict. I think part of it, I, I suppose, is it's so scary. So it's easier just to pretend this isn't happening up the road. For us that are down south. For people in the south, yeah, I can see that. The Irish government's imperative throughout the conflict was not, as unionists suspected, the preservation of Articles 2 and 3 in the Constitution imperative to reunite the country. The Irish government's political imperative throughout the conflict was to make damn sure that the violence did not spill over the border into the 26 counties. That Absolutely. was their that was yeah. that real yeah. politic. That's what they were at. And there was nothing anybody could do to persuade them otherwise. But anyhow, I think with the rise of, of Sinn Féin in the South, um, it's become far more difficult to ignore and gloss over uh, the realities of life in the six counties north of the border. And I, I suppose also, um, there's that, like, there's so many acronyms, right? Maybe you'd explain a few of them. There's a dizzy amount of them, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. you know, Alphabets. like, yeah. And for someone like myself that doesn't understand a whole lot that's going on up there, when I, st I start tuning out as soon as I start hearing the acronyms, because I get very lost. Would you be able to yeah. kind of even even simplify well, some um, of them yes, I, I know the the, the 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 most difficult one for people outside living up here, it might be to understand, is the whole UVF, UDA, UDR thing. The Ulster Defence Regiment, which was the um, legally constituted largest regiment in the British Army, the Ulster Defence Regiment was was uh, was one uh, was UDR, and then UVF was the Ulster Volunteer Force, which was one group of loyalist paramilitaries. And UDA was the Ulster Defence Association, which was another group of loyalist paramilitaries. And I, when I when I came up, when I first came to work in Northern Ireland, I was as totally bemused as as you are, Yvonne. But I, I sooner or later, I got I got myself. But I have, have to say that when I went down south and worked for the Irish Press in the south, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael confused me, you know. And it took me a while. I worked in Leinster House for nearly ten years. And it took me a while to get my head around all of that. So we're not unique up here in confusing political nomenclature. The um, the UDA is itself now. I know it's illegal now, but for most of the troubles, it was uh, it was illegal association. Yes, unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable. Well, not unbelievable, unfortunately, only too believable. Uh, yes, the Ulster Defence Regiment throughout the conflict, when they murdered people, they claimed it in the using the the name. Ulster Freedom Fighters, which was an organisation that didn't exist. It was just a polite fiction that they used. And the British government was colluded in that because they, they didn't particularly want to, they didn't want to ban the UDA. Uh, so, because uh, they were in cahoots with them for a lot of the time. So they didn't, and they, but they knew that we, the Pat Finucane Centre found a document uh, dating back to about 1974, I think, where um, where the writer who's a, who's a British civil servant writes that the UDA is an essentially, this is quotes, essentially fictitious, unquote, organisation. So they knew way back when that the UDA did not exist 
separately from the UFF, so-called, and that the UDA was murdering people right, left and centre. But in order that they could continue talking to them, uh, that they just didn't ban them. It was as brutal as that. And it still infuriates us when people refer to the Ulster Freedom Fighters because they didn't exist. It was just a name that they claimed murders under to avoid the UDA being being banned. To bring our listeners into the whole story of what collusion entails or why, I mean, there's a, there's a big why. Why did the British government, who in essence, or what people believed, uh, came into Northern Ireland at the beginning of the Troubles uh, to keep the peace and keep uh, the, the Catholics safe, essentially. And what was the reason then that they would collude with the other side who at the beginning, they thought, well, they were trying to actually protect Catholics from the loyalists. But that, that's not the case. So why, why then did they to turn around and decide to, to work with loyalist paramilitaries? Well, in order to answer you, uh, you know, I'm going to have to give my own opinion. Uh, sure. but it's, an opinion it's an informed opinion, but it is only an opinion. Uh, and my opinion is that they decided quite early on that they couldn't fight on two fronts. And the loyalist, uh, the loyalist um, target, their aim... Uh, and objectives were fairly similar to the Britain's uh, objectives. Certainly, Britain's objectives and the IRAs were uh, completely at loggerheads. So I think they just decided they couldn't fight on two fronts. But it was quite useful for them to use the UDA and the UVF, the two main loyalist groups. They could use them to instill terror into the nationalist population, to eliminate uh, people that they wanted eliminated, um, it was it, and and it went on for years. It went on for decades. Um, but because you know, collusion, I suppose, is a unique crime because the evidence of collusion is in the hands of one party to the collusion, i.e., the British government. Um, so it was impossible for journalists to expose. Well, very very difficult, if not impossible, for journalists to expose collusion while the conflict was still ongoing, because all the evidence for collusion. Was was in was either in the hands of loyalists or in the hands of the of uh, British military intelligence, the RUC special branch, the um, all the various um, um, all the various groups that were acting in the north on behalf of the British government. And London, after we've I've talked a bit about uh, the Irish government's political imperative, i.e., not having the violence spill over the border. The British government's political imperative, in my view, is that. They wanted, above all, to maintain the, the, the version of history and the version of politics that they were here to keep the peace between the two sides. Having spent an awful long time looking at it in great depth, I don't think um, that was what they'd like us to think. But I believe that they did take sides. They took sides. And as a result of them taking sides, the conflict went on for an awful lot longer than it needed to have done, because quite collusion does not it's a shortcut, and when pe- but people aren't stupid, and they know when there's collusion. They when their neighbours are slaughtered in their homes, uh, the local people, while they were terrified because the loyalists had done it, they also had a very good idea what was really behind it, and that uh, London's dirty little fingers were involved, and it it caused um, terror in the nationalist population, and on top of that, a fundamental a lack of confidence in the apparatus of the state in the in the um in the administration of law and order I mean, nationalists felt that there was no way that london was protecting them uh quite the opposite 
And as a result of that, as a result of their suspicions, if not proven about collusion, certainly very well-founded suspicions, um, there was very little confidence in the nationalist community, in the apparatus of the state, and in the processes of law and order, and the courts, and the police, and the judiciary, and the uh, UDR, the Ulster Defence Regiment. Nationalists felt all of the all of that was all piled up against them, and they saw the IRA as their defenders. Not all of them, obviously, but a lot of them. And as a result of that, the conflict was prolonged. It didn't bring it to a close faster or easier. It made it worse. Uh, that, that is my fundament, fundamental belief at the end of all of the work I've done on the issue. Yeah, I think I, I think I'd probably agree with you, uh, and you maintain as well. I, I believe that it it wasn't a war you know between Catholics and Protestants. It was a, a war of colonialism. A lot of the tactics maybe used um, were inherited from previous uh, colonial conflicts during the fifties and sixties. Yes, I mean, this is something that academics will argue and people will argue about from here to kingdom come. But if you see the North as essentially a colonial and post-colonial situation, you look at what the Brits did when they were in Kenya, um, when they were in Malaya, when they were in other other parts of the British Empire, uh, when they used things like um, mechanisms like internment, torture, um, collusion, and all the other things they did when they were overseas. And when they came to Ireland, that's how they always operated. And that's how they operated in Northern Ireland as well. Uh, you, you have to uh, read the, work, the works of uh, Sir Frank Kitson, who wrote uh, in his, some of his books that the law is essentially a tool for the government to eliminate unwanted members of the public. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's an argument that will be continue to be made because some academics do not see the North as a colonial situation. It's only fair to say, but to other people such as myself do see it in a colonial context and look at the previous colonial experiences and just try and trust, just draw, draw parallels, frankly, with what happened here. And like to bring it up to a little bit to today, I mean, to think that the the Pat Finucane Centre is still operating and and looking into all you know various uh, cases all, all the time, um, you know, it obviously you know it hasn't all been sorted. It isn't all Not solved. All. You know, and I've I've been a regular enough lately. You know, last few years visitor to Belfast. I. I Really, actually, I like the city, you know, I think it's an awful lot of offer. Actually, I love the people, to be honest with you. I think they're really friendly. Um, you get a great level of service wherever you're, whatever you're doing in, in Belfast. And it's a really, really, really nice thing. And you don't notice it more too overtly. You know, I've, I've wandered around the city, all right. But maybe living there, you know, you might describe to, to listeners, like, what, what sort of tensions exist today? Well, none of the, there's only one peace line, I think, has come down, you know, Um um, all that I very occasionally, if people are very, very lucky and I'm in a good mood, very occasionally, probably only once or twice a year, I give people a little my, my trip around Belfast because I find it quite upsetting because everywhere we go will bring back memories to me, will trigger uh, memories in my head of things, awful things that I saw and experienced in various places. So I don't do it very often, but if I do, and I did do it recently, uh, there was someone over whom I have a great deal of respect for, and I wanted him to see 
what uh, what Belfast is like. And so I, I did the tour and uh, he was stunned, absolutely stunned, could not believe what he had seen, which was very gratifying for me because that's how I feel uh, as well, um, because there are still uh, Belfast has changed immensely. But this, the peace lines are still there. And um, and if, if you try to take them down, there'd be a hell of a hullabaloo, you know, because people aren't ready for that yet. Um, if they ever will be. Um, so, I mean, yes, Belfast is, has come a long way. It, the people in this, this place are incredibly friendly, although sometimes I, sus- I suspect there's a slight um, undertone of curiosity about who you are and where you're from, and they'll find <laughs> more about you, be, they'll find out more about you being friendly than they will being hostile. But uh, yes, um, the city in many ways has not changed. I mean, you know, people go to separate, segregated libraries, shopping centres, doctors, un- par- bars, of course, uh, apart from the city centre. Um, so it is still a divided city, no doubt about it. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You know, it's a, it was just not true to say that it's all over. People are still very suspicious of each other and, and are very careful where they go and who they're seen with, you know. And I can imagine in the early days of the, the, the centre, you know, there would be many walls and obstacles in your way, particularly even actually when you were writing the, the book Lethal Allies. Um, do those same obstacles uh, apply today or what are, are those obstacles? Well, in some, in some, some obstacles are worse. I mean, at the moment, the British government is trying to push through a law, which would mean that no family in the north will ever be allowed to seek the truth through legal processes. It's a, it's unbelievable. Uh, that word again, unbelievable. It's only too believable, unfortunately. That London is trying to stop people in Northern Ireland using the courts to find out the truth about what happened to their loved ones. They're trying yeah. to end all inquests, all police ombudsman's inquiries, all judicial reviews, any, everything, all, all compensation cases. London is trying to close the whole lot down. We are hoping against hope, and we we have good reason to hope, that the closing down of all those legal processes will not include the inquiry that is currently underway into the Glenann series of murders that I wrote about in Lethal Allies. Because for the last five years, the former Chief Constable of Bedfordshire in, in England uh, John Boucher has been inquiry has been leading an inquiry into those murders, and it's been ongoing for the last five years. Um, and there's also a separate police ombudsman's inquiry into the uh, into the events that I chronicled in Lethal Allies. So there are two very very long-standing um, inquiries that are coming up, that are reaching the end of their work. Uh, hopefully, the the reports will be published both of them next year. So it's very, very far from over. The whole thing is very far from over. But I mean, the Glenann family is the 120, which would include the Dublin unknown bombing victims. We're in a way, as strange to say, lucky because at least because of the Pat Finucane Centre's hard work and investigations, and because we've we fought through the courts for over four years, we got those inquiries set up. And there are many, many other families who will be suffering in silence who haven't come forward, who don't know what happened to their loved ones, who don't even know how to start finding out um, because there's been no proper, um, fair, equal truth recovery mechanism. It's been ad hoc. 
But even despite it being ad hoc and despite it being unfair and despite the fact that the only people who got anywhere near the truth are those people who fought like mad and have had people, uh, organisations like us in the Papua New Centre on their side, those people um, really haven't even started down the road to truth and truth and justice, you know? Our, yeah. At least our families are part of the way down that road. Because um, there was a couple of interviews that I was uh, looking at and one was Pafanukan's son. Um, and I thought I was aghast that when he was asked the question about where will this stop? When will your inquiry stop? Because it's already cost X amount of million to, to investigate it to this level. And that was after, remind me of the latest. Well, the, oh. the, the, the family, Pat Fanukin's family are, are fighting yeah. on their own behalf. Let, just, just briefly, Yvonne, I'd just like to say the truth yeah. is free. It's telling yeah. lies that cost the money. Absolutely. I mean, if if the Brits would come out and open up their archives and let people into them and find out the truth, uh, it would cost a minimum amount of money. It's there. I mean, the reason the Bloody Sunday inquiry cost so much was that every step of the way, London fought against uh, revealing the truth. You know, you know, whether the soldiers should be named, whether they should be not named, whether they should appear in court, whether the guns should be were, were, were discoverable, all those things. I mean, all the, all of that go through the high court and it costs yeah. hundreds and thousands of pounds per day. If they hadn't fought so hard to conceal the truth, the bloody Sunday inquiry would not have cost as much as it did. And, and, and that lesson is still relevant because they're still trying to hide the truth. Yeah. Uh, and, and people won't give up. I mean, even if this law goes through in September, which it may do, but families, are, I mean, the lawyers are just going to challenge it and take it to Europe. And so you have delay, delay, delay. And more money being means... wasted on, on trying to cover up Absolutely. the truth. Yeah, Absolutely. It's, the, the, it's the De Silva inquiry I was trying to remember there. Yes, the De Silva yeah. inquiry. That was an inquiry. That was a desktop review. I mean, he just took what had already been discovered and read it all and then produced a report. It wasn't yeah. an inquiry. It wasn't an investigation. It was just a review yeah. of what had already been found. And, and yeah. the British government have apologised to Pat Vanuken's family. It's there's no there's absolutely no no uh, no doubt about the fact that there was ultimate collusion in, in his murder, the murder of a solicitor in front of his yeah. young family. Um, and they yeah. have apologised for that. But the Fanukan family, who conduct their own their own campaign very very efficiently and very well. They want to find out how far up the system of chain of command that yeah. collusion went, because they believe it went right to the top, which means yeah. Downing Street, which is yeah. which would explain why the Brits are fighting so hard against the truth coming out, because yeah. they know where it will lead, and it will lead yeah. to a lot of people very uncomfortable, because uh, that you know that's what the Fanukan family believe, uh, yeah. and certainly London seems determined to prevent them getting the full public independent inquiry that they've been asking for for so long. And it must be the same then for Rosemary Nelson. I was watching an yeah. interview with with her and she was saying how she was so scared that the same was going to happen to her. And within, yeah, within was. yeah. Yeah, I knew Rosemary very well. She was great, a great friend. And I mean, her death was absolutely horrendous. I, I don't think there was an inquiry there was a public inquiry into her murder, but I don't think it got to the truth. I really don't. I mean, it, it, and there there are some families who don't want 
who want to leave things sitting. But there are other families who are really determined to try and find out what happened to their loved ones. And if this this wretched bill goes through in September, it'll just kick off another more delay and more expense and uh, with without much truth or justice. Yeah. Um, and in the meantime, of course, people die. I mean, I worked when I was with the Pat Fanukan Centre, I worked with some el- very elderly people. And, and I mean, about what, maybe maybe 40 of them died while we were fighting to try and get the inquiry going into the Glenann series of murders. And it is heartbreaking to go to the funeral of an elderly man whose wife was blown up uh, and there is evidence of collusion. And he fought like mad all his life since that day to try and find out the truth of what happened to her. And because of the delays that London is responsible for, uh, he's dead. I mean, he's dead. He's died. He's in his grave. And he's not the only one. There are many others as well. And they'll never, we, we sometimes say, just to sum it up, we sometimes say the British policy is the three Ds, delay, deny, and death. You know, they're hoping, I think, that if enough people die, then they won't have to admit what they did up here or, or for all those years. But I can tell you that there are grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I was at a court case recently where the great-grandchild of a man who had been tortured was in the court and, and swearing that he would fight on, you know, and it is intergenerational trauma. Uh, it's, and we don't, it's not that we encourage it or anything, but people feel that way. I mean, and it is trauma being passed down generations. And if there is no truth and reconciliation, then this place is never going to recover and be a normal society because people but- are always going to feel resentful of the state resentful of the of the organs of the state feel they can't trust the government that's no way for people to live you're, you're so you're so you're so right Anne, and I, that's why it is going to take you know it's, it's going to take more than Sinn Féin coming into power in the south uh, and a quick shaking hands and joining the the, yes. the, two, the two countries together but it just for the benefit of the listeners just describe that Pat Finucane you know was solicitor uh, Obviously, he represented a lot of Republicans. He was brutally murdered. He was uh, two two men sledgehammered through his door with the family sitting at home dinner, and he was shot fourteen times in front of his family. Uh, and the other lady you were mentioned, your friend Rosemary Nelson, was killed by a car bomb. So two horrible, horrible ways to the ways ways to die. The Glenan gang, though, like this, this is you know for anybody outside right and this obviously is at the heart of collusion is as well like who are the Glenan gang and what justice uh were, was meted out of? yes uh, well lethal allies is the book that i wrote and it is about that that gang the Glenan gang and um, they're named after a small village in south armar it's a bit of a misnomer because um they were much more they were much wider spread than just that small village in south armar but it, the name stuck, you know, so it's become like shorthand for that, that gang of people. And they weren't uh, very closely connected. They were uh, disparate, but they 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 shared um, guns, they shared in, intelligence, and we believe they were also um, being guided by by um, sinister forces within the state, uh, within the UDR, the RUC Special Branch, and military intelligence, um, and. They killed 120 people, including the Dublin Monaghan bombings, and 
the reason that we know so much about them, and we're very lucky, the, those families are lucky in some ways, it's strange to say it, seeing as how their, their loved ones suffered an appalling death, but at least those families have got some truth, which is in the book, and which John Boucher is now investigating. And the reason that they do is that, well, one part of it was the Barron inquiries under um, Henry Barron, who was a high, who was the Supreme Court judge in the South, who held three or four inquiries into Dublin Monaghan. And because we in the PFC um, developed a relationship with a group of ex-police officers which were formed into an organisation called the Historical Inquiries Team that the then Chief Constable in the North, Hugh Ord, set up to try and get to the truth of what happened during the conflict. And we worked with the Historical Inquiries Team uh, and we they had access to the RUC files. So we didn't have access to the files, but the Historical Inquiries Team detectives did. Most of them were former British detectives and some of them were very honest and very diligent and they did a great job. Others of them weren't, but the ones we worked with were particularly hardworking and determined and honest and decent people. Um, and they got to a lot of truth. And they told us what they they told the families that each family got a, a, a quite a long report in which there was a commentary by the HET to the effect that there appeared to be collusion. And there was no explanation for why some murders were not cleared up and why some uh, loyalists seemed to lead charmed lives, so we say. Um, so the the victims of in, in, of the Glenan gang at least have some modicum of truth. They have a book, they have a film, uh, but they haven't, and they have reports written by the historical inquiries team, but they haven't got to the full truth of what happened uh, which we're hoping that John Boucher, whose investigation is now five years old, we're hoping that his report will give them a lot more truth about what really went on in the mid-1970s, in the Mid-Ulster area, in Tyrone, North Armagh, and those areas where the Glenan gang operated. So we're we're hopeful. We're travelling with hope. We don't know where what our destination will be, but we're still travelling, hopefully. The UDR and, and the RUC, which is the Royal Ulster Constabulary, uh, which was a police force in, in Northern Ireland at the time. So what was happening was guns were getting siphoned off arms uh, yeah. uh, supply dumps of the UDR and were getting yeah. used in all these murders as well. Yeah. I think you managed I mean, to tie one gun to something, 11 murders, something like that? The, the nine same gun? murders, yeah. One gun yeah. tied to nine murders. I mean, not for one instant are we saying, and not for one instant am I saying, that every single police officer or every single UDR soldier was corrupt, but sufficient numbers of them were. Um, and yes, we found monthly reports dating way back to 1972, where the where internal British uh, reports written by civil servants and soldiers to each other, which every month um, indicated that, that weapons had gone missing from various spaces and in quite a lot of the cases collusion was suspected but yet they didn't okay. stand down well they just yeah. sort of stated boldly you know the guns have gone we don't know where they are they're in the hands of loyalist paramilitaries uh, and collusion is suspected i.e it wasn't a theft so much as a handing over of those guns from british arsenals to loyalist paramilitaries that, that were subsequently used to murder people 
Uh, and that happened month after month. The, the Brits are very good at keeping records. And uh, there they are, month after month. There are all these nice, neat figures of, of so many guns are missing from this UDR base and, and where collusion is suspected. Uh, and they knew they were being killed. I mean, they knew that the, the guns weren't being just hidden under floorboards or anything. They were being used to kill people. And as you rightly say, one gun was used to kill nine people, uh, and including the father of my colleague in the Panthenoucan Centre, Alan Brecknell, who's, who's, who was just celebrating the birth of his baby daughter, um, was lifting a pint of Guinness to his lips in a bar in uh, outside in, in a place called uh, Silverbridge in South Armagh. He was an Englishman from, uh, from Birmingham, Trevor Brecknell. He was just celebrating the birth of his baby girl. And as he lifted the pint of Guinness to his lips, the door burst open and, and he was he was shot dead. And then they threw in a bomb afterwards and four people were shot dead in that incident. And we know now from the Historical Inquirer's team report that the IUC had a very good idea who was involved. And yet none of them were arrested or convicted. But uh, and it, it just goes on and on and on and on. You know, we managed to get enough pieces of the jigsaw to put together, to show, to demonstrate that collusion is not Republican propaganda. It is actually, it actually happened. And, and the result of collusion was, as I said earlier, was a total lack of confidence in the state as far as nationalists were concerned and the prolongation of the conflict in the North that should have ended a hell of a lot sooner than it did. What, what interests me as well is what was the point of the, the Ulster Defence Regiment? I mean, you had the police service, the RUC, you had the British Army, uh, who you know, obviously the Republicans thought uh, they, they were an occupying force. But the UDR, you know, notionally, I mean, I did read somewhere, I can't remember what book, it was a good while ago. Um, a lot of it, checking cars, you know, they set up checkpoints. Yeah check cars. There were areas they weren't allowed in. In Garrett Fitzgerald, when he was Taoiseach, um, and Peter Barry, when he was Minister for Foreign Affairs uh, in the mid-1980s, uh, spent a lot of effort and time making sure that the UDR were, were not used in sensitive areas such as West Belfast. But in the mid-1970s, the UDR were, uh, were, were allowed to go anywhere. I mean, Seamus Mallon, who was the deputy leader of the SDLP, when he was stopped, he, he frequently was stopped. And he was a local MP. And yet it, it, the UDR people who stopped him said, who are you? Prove your prove your identity. You know, they knew damn rightly. He was, you know, it was just to annoy people. Uh, I think I think it was him who said it's a bit like, you know, dressing, you know, in, in an area where. Ranger supporters are in a majority giving Celtic supporters or the other way around a weapon and asking them to go out and uh, police the area. I mean, it was a red, it was just, it was insane, really. It was almost like they were. At the early stage, like when it was set up, I think, was, was there something like 20% of, of the regiment were Catholic? And then that number yes. started to, to dwindle really, yeah. really fast. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it did. Yeah. It was a bit like the RUC when it was set up. Some yeah. Catholics joined. Now, unionists would say that the reason that Catholics uh, left the RUC and the UDR was because of, of threats from Republicans. And I've no doubt that is partly true. But I think the mostly, mostly they left because, um, because of the way they were treated and because of seeing seeing the the regiment the udr and seeing the iuc as protecting a state in which they felt they had no no stake and uh, in which they felt like second class citizens so why should they collaborate uh with policing 
a society where they were themselves being badly treated and so and their families and their compatriots okay okay well it seems to me Anne, like the i mean the northern ireland conflict has shaped your life utterly hasn't it you know it really oh, really has as, 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 uh, as a friend of mine said to me once after the ceasefires and after the good friday agreement and you and i have become experts in a conflict that no longer exists so I found myself in my mid fifties, being an, having an expertise in an area that was redundant, really. But uh, well, it wasn't redundant because I joined the Pat Finucane Centre and and uh, did a lot of good work. Um, but it's certainly not over yet. But it has, yes, it has. It how, has how would you identify? How would you identify? Because it's just it interests me when you're talking. You, know, you, you, you say you know, the British, and it, it's it's almost like you are no longer British and you've almost been assimilated over to the other side. And, well, you know, but... I'm, I'm British. I mean, I'm still British. My yeah. father was an officer in the British Army. My brother was oh, okay. a policeman. And my sister was also in the British Army. Um, my brother well, was a policeman. So, I mean, I come from that kind of background. But, yeah. but I believe, I firmly believe, that um, that the people of England and Britain generally have no idea what was being done over here in their name. Mm. And I, I hope and believe that if my father and my mother and my other family members were fully informed of what was going on over here, they would share my cynicism about the mm. role of, of the British state in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, yeah. I, I hope that would be the case, you know. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of people in England would feel the same. But it is really difficult to explain to people. I, I've sort of mostly given up, actually, because people in England really, A, a they, they've made up their minds already and they don't want to know. So I don't often go over to England. But when I do, I do I'm not proselytizing. I'm not trying to persuade anyone because I think it's probably pretty difficult to do um, to persuade people at this stage that their government played a very um, sinister role over here in Northern Ireland. They, they honestly do believe that that, they, that London did a great job keeping two two warring tribes apart. Terrible Protestants and Catholics can't get on together. Bloody nonsense, you know. But still, that's that's the myth. And um, if the myth suits you, believe the myth. That's it. Well, you, you describe I me mean, that like what you described is you could say it's it's not all that dissimilar to how the um, United States operates globally as well. So, you know, it, it, state apparatus in general has this tendency to behave in colonial ways and, and trying to you know use the, the powers of the state, like you said, to, to write the law and get rid of the unwanted people. And, and, and the tragedy is that it, that. If you start saying, well, it's okay to break the law because we're in a situation which requires that we do break the law, like we just have to bend the law a bit or we have to bend the rules between right and wrong. Once you've done that, you're lost as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the law has to be upheld no matter who, no matter what. That's a matter of morals and ethics, but also, I think, a practical solutions as well because i think that once you once you bend, bend that rule once you once you bend that line then i think you're you're on a very dangerous path and there are no shortcuts to conflict there are no shortcuts and it might be very easy to say oh sure we'll 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 arrest these people and we'll torture them a bit 
and see what they say. And it's okay because we'll find out enough. It'll be justified. Or we'll send out an agent to kill so-and-so because in the long run, it'll save lives. In the long run, it doesn't save lives. That's the point. And the proof of that is here in Northern Ireland where this conflict should have been solved a hell of a long time ago, but wasn't. And I honestly believe that part of the reason for that was that uh, the British government misbehaved and broke the law and used agents to kill and, and tortured people and put people in jail without trial and generally behaved appallingly for, for, for year after year after year and was allowed to get away with it. And as a result, the conflict dragged on and dragged on and dragged on. And it didn't save lives. And it wasn't a shortcut. It was just a dreadful mistake. And I don't think people have learned from it even yet. No, but what I will say, Anne, this has been a real pleasure speaking to you. I mean, I think it's actually nearly a year since you uh, agreed and there was a couple of things happening. We kept missing each other or whatnot. So I've been really delighted to have uh, been able to do this. But I, I'm not sure that without you, people would have taken it seriously at all. I mean, I do believe you've done tremendous work. You've left an amazing legacy for those to, to follow in your in your footsteps. Um, well, and, I, I uh, do hope that people down south don't talk about alleged collusion anymore. I think no. you know, I think people in the south did talk, did honestly feel it was just Republican propaganda yeah. to try and blacken the name of the state. I think now uh, that people have, have moved on from that and they do accept that wrong things were done and people were not held accountable for the wrong they did. Um, I do hope that has made that has changed. Um, but there's still an awful long way to go. Oh, there is, there until is. we understand what really went on in the North, you know, all those years. So, and I know you don't do it often, right? And I'm not going to hold this. I'll, I'll, I'll message you sometime. I'd love to do that tour with you. Never oh. up to it. Um, I know. I know Malachi O'Doherty does the odd tour as well. So uh, there, is, there is option B. But I, I, I'd, I'd like to take you as option A. Well, I'm open to bribes. Ah, good, good, good. good. <laughs> we can do to bribery, not corruption, but I'm open to bribery. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. That's allowed. Yeah. That's allowed. Listen, thank you so much for, for joining us on The Historians. Really, really great. Okay. And uh, yeah. I've enjoyed every minute. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, no and problem. you're fascinating. Absolutely fascinating, you know. I'm just, I'm listening here with my ears wide open. I, I am new to all of this. I'm new to learning about you know, history, you know, I've always shunned away from it because I find it too scary. And uh, well, I, I find was... it scary too, by the way. And the yeah. last thing I wanted to do, the last thing, because when I went to join the Pat Finucan Centre, my husband was very ill. He'd just been diagnosed with a, with a terminal illness. And one of the reasons I went to work for the PFC was I was going to be working three days a week. And I, I was out of the frying pan into the fire. The last thing I wanted to do was investigate collusion. The very last yeah. thing, because I find the whole concept of collusion repulsive. I mean, I just want to push it away because it yeah. is so horrible and it's so difficult to investigate because you can't get to the facts because the facts are all hidden by the people who did the collusion. And uh, But anyhow, I did it in the end, but it was very hard. It was, it was on your first you know, day you were asked, weren't you? On your first day in the yeah. PFC. Yeah, yeah, you were asked, will you write this book, you know, so. Yeah, hadn't even started, actually, before I'd started. Yeah, yeah. I was horrified. horrified. And now, are you glad? 
20,000 copies later, are you glad you oh, wrote it? Oh, very much so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, of course I am, yeah. I mean, I always say it pushed me to the edge of insanity. And if I'm really honest, probably a little bit over the edge. But um, no, I'm glad I wrote it. It was, uh, looking back on it, it was the best thing I've ever done in my life. You know, it was the most difficult thing I've ever done. But at least yeah. I've, you know, I, there is some kind of a legacy I'll leave behind, you know. And you mentioned... I, you mentioned the documentary film that was um, yes. made. What's that called again? And where is it available to view? It's available. Uh, it's called Unquiet Graves. And if you type in into Google Unquiet Graves, Journeyman Pictures, it was aired on RTE. There was an awful okay. stink when it went out on RTE. Um, uh, your man Flanagan, Charlie Flanagan, got his knickers in a twist over it. But it did okay. go out on RTE. Um, and it got a great uh, that is called Unquiet Graves. I think it's you can you can stream it for I don't know three pound fifty or something. You know, it's okay. on a website called Journeyman Pictures, and it's a lot awful lot easier to to assimilate that than it is to read the book. You know, the book is okay. very dense and very cross referenced, and you know it's quite hard to read. You know, it's yeah. not an easy read. But the well, film is even much easier. You can sit back and it can wash over you, and you can. You can assimilate what it's what it's saying in a much easier way. With that, Anne, thank you very much. And uh, historians, uh, yeah, this has been fascinating. I hope you found it that way too. And we'll uh, speak to you again uh, next week.